Well, morning, everybody. Really good to, uh, good to see you. Um, let me explain why I spend a fair amount of my life traveling around the country speaking on sexuality. Um, I had the privilege of being born into a, a Christian family, really thankful for uh, loving Christian parents. I had the misfortune of being born aged 40. Um, and that meant sort of growing up as a kid, I sort of hated church in my early years because sort of action songs and memory verses, they're all kind of patronizing and I really wanted to be an adult. Around the age of 12, I became a Christian. One or two things happened that made me realize that God was real, that I needed to know him, and so I put my trust in the Lord Jesus. Not long after that, like most human beings, I started to develop romantic feelings, sexual attractions, and so on. This wasn't something that I chose, but as a teenager, those were for guys rather than girls. Um, well, let's be honest, 30 years on from being a teenager, that hasn't changed. And so one of the big questions for me in life has been, how do I live with Jesus as Lord whilst at the same time feeling attraction to people of the same sex? That's just one of the questions that I've wrestled with for the last uh, 30 years or so. Now, I work for a group called uh, Living Out. Living Out uh, aims to speak into issues of faith and sexuality. And probably the main person we've got in mind as we put resources together is the 17-year-old. The 17-year-old who's perhaps grown up in a church youth group, has started to develop romantic feelings of people of the same sex and puts into Google Christian and gay. And we'd love living out to be top. Actually, at the moment, you get to a BBC News article as top, but we're getting there. And we want to provide resources for people in that position. But aware it's not just the 17-year-olds. It's the 27-year-olds who wouldn't call themselves a Christian is intrigued by Jesus, and the one thing putting them off becoming a Christian is their suspicion that the church is homophobic. Or it's the 37-year-old Christian who's trying to witness to her gay friend at work and is dreading the, so what do you make of sexuality question. Or it's the 47-year-old parent whose 15-year-old son has just said to them, I think I might be gay. Or it's the uh, 57-year-old church member who's trying to work out where on earth should the church land on questions to do with same-sex marriage. Or it's the 67-year-old grandparent who discovers that the small children aren't talking to their parents but are talking to them and they've got no idea what to say. Or it's the 77-year-old who realizes in their own lifetime something has gone from being criminalized to celebrate and they're just discombobulated by the whole thing. And I'm sure it's relevant to the 87-year-old. I just ran out of illustrations. But you, uh... but you get the idea, don't you? This is relevant at a whole range of areas. Now, the more I've thought about my own life and the more I've thought about those different situations, what I've realized is that we need to go backwards. And there are actually questions that lie behind the whole issue of sexuality. Essentially, as you look at our culture, there are two main ways of doing life, two main ways of doing life. The prevailing view in our culture is this. You do life by looking inside yourself, 
seeing what's there and living that out. In a sense, our deepest feelings are what determine our identity. Now, that's true of gender, and there are seminars on gender on Thursday and Friday, and so I'm not really going to go to gender uh, today or tomorrow. But that's true of gender, and it's certainly true of our sexuality. Look inside yourself, see what's there, and live it out. Let me give you an example uh, of that. Uh, Nigel Owens is, uh, or was, now retired actually, one of the most successful rugby referees in the world. He refereed the 2015 Rugby World Cup final. Uh, he's also gay, and around the time he refereed the Rugby World Cup finally gave a, a number of quite moving interviews. He, he spoke about growing up in a Welsh village, knowing that he was gay. Tragically, there was one or two attempts on his own life until he comes to a place of acceptance. Here's how he put it in the, in the interview. I couldn't accept who I was. I didn't want to be the person I was becoming. I didn't want to be gay. But after I accepted who I was, the next challenge was whether rugby would accept who I am. Rugby is supporting me, and players, spectators, pundits, and administrators have all enabled me to be who I am. Now, I reckon you've got to be quite hard-hearted not to feel the force of a story like that. Actually, a, a place of turmoil comes to a place of self-acceptance, goes off and has a hugely successful career. It's a kind of redemption story, if you like. It's incredibly powerful. There's just one thing I want to query. Do you notice the assumption in that quote that our sexuality is our identity? I think it's three times it talks about who I am, who I am, who I am. Who, who am I? Well, that's determined by my deepest feelings. It's determined by who I'm sexually attracted to. That's who I am. Now, that is the prevailing view in culture that isn't argued for, it's just assumed, actually. We are our deepest feelings. And if there's no God, that's probably the best we can manage. If there was no God, probably the best we could manage is look inside yourself, see what's there, and live it out. But what if there is a God? What if there's a God who knows me better than I know myself? What if there's a God who knows what's best for me better than I know myself. What if that God has shown himself to be loving and kind as he's walked around on the earth? If that's the case, the best way to do life isn't going to be look inside yourself, see what's there and live it out. The best way to do life is going to be listen to the voice outside you, telling you who you are, and live that out. Do you see the two different ways of doing life? Look inside yourself, see what's there, and live that out. Listen to the loving voice outside you telling you who you are, and live that out. In other words, I know you're here for a session on sexuality, but the actual question is this, what's the universe about? Does the universe work best with me and my desires center stage, or does the universe work best with God and his plan center stage? And I think in conversations about sexuality, we've always got to go back there, actually. You know, as I talk to some of my mates who aren't Christians, who are slightly mystified by some of the decisions that I've made, basically end up saying this to them. It kind of depends what you think the universe is about, really. You really do have to go all the way back there. Because often in our conversations, people are just assuming the way to do life is look inside yourself and live that out. And it's only actually if we query that, our conversation's going to make sense. 
Well, let's assume for the rest of this morning that was a god. I, I thought I would be on fairly safe territory making that assumption here. And so assuming there is a loving and kind God, what is his plan for sexuality and marriage? And we know the answer to that question because of what Jesus said. When Jesus uh, walked around on the earth, at a number of points he was uh, asked questions. And here's a question he was asked, which are effectively about sexual ethics. Happens to be a question about divorce that the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, ask him. And Jesus' response in Matthew 19, as he's asked about divorce, is saying, well, before I talk about divorce, I want to talk about marriage. And he says this, haven't you read, he replied, that at the beginning the Creator made the male and female and said, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. They're no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Now, just in passing, by the way, and this is free, it's not really anything to do with sexuality, this is one of those places where, just in passing, Jesus defines the Bible as God's word. Because actually he just quotes Genesis. And the last bit, for this reason a man will leave his father and mother. Actually, that's the narrator of Genesis, if you go back to Genesis 2. But Jesus simply says, that's what God says. That's what Genesis says, is what God says. But here says, Jesus says that if I'm marriage and the right context for a one-flesh relationship, you've got to go back to God's plan at the beginning. And Jesus deliberately underlines the fact that it is male and female. Do you notice, Genesis 1, he made them male and female. Quotes Genesis 1, and then quotes Genesis 2, for this reason a man will leave his father and be united to his wife. By quoting both Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, Jesus is underlining that marriage is designed to be a loving, permanent, faithful relationship between a man and a woman, and that is the right context for sex. Now, do you remember the question I started off with? I want to live with Jesus, Lord, and I'm attracted to people of the same sex. This becomes a really important passage for me. Because this is Jesus saying, Andy, whatever your desires are, it isn't right to live those out in a sexual relationship with a guy. Because here is God's plan for marriage. Now, it's worth noticing how that conversation in Matthew 19 develops. Because as Jesus gives quite a tight definition of marriage, the, the disciples end up saying, well, maybe it's better not to get married then. And to be honest, if ever I do anything on singleness and that's the conclusion I can backtrack, whoa, 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 we've gone too far. But Jesus kind of doubles down a little bit. He says, indeed, there will be those who don't get married, don't have a sexual relationship. He talks about there are eunuchs, those who don't have sex, who are born that way. Maybe they can't have sex for reasons of physical disability. There are eunuchs who've been made that way by others. Tragically, that happened in ancient society. People, as they entered government service, were often castrated. And there are those who choose to live like eunuchs for the sake of the kingdom of heaven. In other words, there will be those who, out of loyalty to God and his kingdom, out of loyalty to Jesus' Lord, won't end up having a sexual relationship, won't end up getting married, and Jesus gives profound dignity to people in that position. A while back I was uh, speaking, uh, 
as a, a visitor in a place that will remain nameless. But, and I was having that sort of slightly weird, small talk you sometimes have before uh, a meeting. Uh, and somebody asked me, so you're here with your wife and your kids? I said, well, yeah, I'm not married, actually. Um, oh, oh, have you never found anybody you liked? Or have you never found anybody who likes you? And I'm like, well, this is a slightly awkward conversation, isn't it? And two thoughts struck me. One was, I can use this. This is great. <laughs> and my second thought was, this would be a much easier conversation with Jesus. Because Jesus gives great dignity to those who don't get married, don't have sex out of loyalty to him. He doesn't see them as failures, substandard in any way. Because, of course, if you're looking for somebody who doesn't help have sex out of loyalty to the kingdom, well, Jesus himself fits that model. I mean, let's be honest, the cross would have looked slightly different with a wife and three kids kicking around. And Jesus himself doesn't have a sexual relationship pursuing the ultimate kingdom of heaven. And so as you see Jesus teaching on this, what you see is he defines the right context for sex as the marriage of a man and a woman and gives great dignity and respect to those who are single. Now, it's worth saying, I'm not going to spend long on this, that what Jesus puts positively in terms of how he defines marriage, the rest of the Bible puts negatively. There aren't a lot of references to same-sex sexual relationships in the Bible, but all that there are are actually negative. And so you have Romans chapter 1, although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Now, Paul's point is the whole of humanity has a problem. The whole of humanity has a problem. We've ignored God, not given thanks to him, despite the fact that he's given us everything. And then there are various symptoms of that problem. And one of the symptoms of that problem is we overturn God's plan for sexuality. What should be marriage between a man and a woman turns into homosexual relationships which are outside of God's plan. Or, or again, in uh, 1 Corinthians and in 1 Timothy as well, you have a list of sins. Worth noticing, it's within a list. But within that list, you have uh, something that the NIV translates as men who have sex with men. Now, sometimes you'll hear it say that, well, we don't really know how to translate that word. And, you know, it seems to be really about exploitative sexual relationships. So it's got nothing to say to sort of monogamous homosexual relationships today. I have to be honest, I don't think that's the case, actually. The word that Paul uses as he uh, talks about men who have sex with men is almost identical to the Greek translation of the Old Testament. And he's picking up the language of Leviticus, do not have sexual relations with a man as one does with a woman. And so the prohibition isn't on certain types of homosexual relationship. It is a prohibition on all same-sex sexual activity. And so you see Jesus teaching, and you see the rest of the Bible being consistent. And I think we do have to pay attention to that. A while back, I was trying to help a, a church, and they were working out where to land on this 
issue of same-sex marriage. And I realized actually before I went to the church, this was going to be slightly tricky because I read a sort of sermon that the, the pastor had preached where he essentially said this, you know, the Bible seems to be really negative about same-sex marriage, but of course Jesus was always welcoming and inclusive. Now, gloriously, Jesus is wonderfully welcoming and inclusive of all those who will repent and turn to him. But I remember reflecting that any sentence that goes, the Bible says dot, 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 but Jesus says dot, 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 is always mildly problematic. More than that, I think my friend was falling into a trap that Christians down the centuries have fallen into. You know how if you go into old church buildings, you'll see stained glass windows. And very often the picture of Jesus that you get in this stained glass window is you know, quite blonde and blue-eyed. Almost certainly nothing like what Jesus would actually have looked like. Because, of course, what Christians have always been tempted to do is, well, Jesus must look basically a little bit like us. And so it doesn't entirely surprise me that, at the moment, even within the church, there are some 21st century Jesuses who basically think exactly like we do. Whereas the Jesus who walked around in the Gospels does define marriage as male and female. More than that, occasionally people will say, well, Jesus has got nothing to say into this subject. Now, to be sure, Jesus doesn't ever explicitly refer to same-sex sexual activity. But we've seen him define marriage as male and female. And what Jesus often talks about in the Gospels is he does talk about sexual immorality. And it seems to me he's clearly adopting the definition that existed from the Old Testament. Sexual immorality is sex outside the context of a male-female marriage. And if he didn't think that was what sexual immorality was, he really did need to tell us, and he doesn't. And so I think the biblical evidence is clear. Marriage is male, female. But let me tell you the conversation that I end up having most often as I talk about this to individuals or teach on it. It goes something like this. Okay, Andy, I can see it's in the Bible. I just don't like it. I can even see maybe Jesus teaches it. I just don't like it. And I understand that. I understand that particularly when it becomes personal and we're talking about family members or friends. I understand that. But can I say in the end, it's in the Bible but I don't like it, doesn't really feel like a kind of sustainable position long term. Because we'll probably try and find ways around it. Or alternatively, it makes God the kind of God who makes you eat sprouts. Yeah, I'm sure you're sensible people who think sprouts are utterly repulsive. And it kind of makes God the kind of God who makes you tolerate stuff that's just deeply unpleasant, but you've got to eat it. And over the long term, it becomes quite hard to worship a God who makes you tolerate stuff that's just deeply unpleasant. What I want to try and do in much of the remaining time is trying to explain why this is the case. Why does God make it this way? Now, that's partly to do with how he set things up in creation, that men and female are deliberately complementary. And that's the case, uh, certainly physically, and what leads, uh, where possible, to, uh, to offspring. But as you also look through the Bible, what you discover is that marriage as a concept gets bigger and bigger and bigger. 
So it starts with human marriage, starts with Adam and Eve, and you know, Jacob quite likes getting married and so on. It, you know, it, it starts with human marriage. And then you get verses like this in Isaiah 54. Your maker is your husband. The Lord Almighty is his name. Isaiah 54, unsurprisingly, just off the back of Isaiah 53, that astonishing prophecy of the the Lord Jesus pierced for our transgressions. And the following chapters essentially open up all that Jesus' death on the cross has won for us. A relationship with God that is now marriage-like. Your maker is your husband. Or or listen to some of my favorite verses in the whole Bible. Sorry if you can't read that at the back, but it's Isaiah 62, verses 3 to 5. You will be a crown of splendor in the Lord's hand, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. No longer will they call you deserted or name your land desolate, for the Lord will take delight in you, and your land will be married. As a young man marries a young woman, so will your builder marry you. As a bridegroom rejoice over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. Now, I used to be a a, a church pastor, and one of the privileges sometimes of being a pastor was standing about here, and over there would be a guy looking quite nervous in a sort of awkwardly fitting suit. And there at the back would be a woman dressed in white. And the joy of standing here was I got to see his face as she was walking down the aisle. And he was normally vaguely positive about what he saw. (laughs) He was thrilled. Hey, she's beautiful and she's coming for me. And as a bridegroom rejoice over his bride, so will your God rejoice over you. You ever come across verse in the Bible where you think, gosh, I wouldn't dare write that but it's there. God is making us beautiful. He does it as he comes to earth, Lord Jesus, he dies on the cross, and he wants us for his bride. You see, that promise of God being like a bridegroom hangs around for centuries until you get Jesus appearing on the scene, and it's John the Baptist's disciples asking, why don't you and your disciples fast? And Jesus says, how can the guests of the bridegroom mourn while he's with them? It's one of three places, I think, where Jesus uses bridegroom language to describe himself. One of the glories of Christmas is Jesus is the bridegroom looking for his bride. That's why he comes to earth. Until you get Paul in Ephesians 5, this is a profound mystery. Can I say, I love the fact that Paul describes marriage as a profound mystery. I'm up there with him on that. But when Paul uses mystery language, it's basically technical language. And mystery in biblical terms is something hinted at throughout the Old Testament, which is now fully revealed with the coming of Jesus. And it seems to me Paul is saying that with the coming of Jesus, the purpose of marriage has finally been revealed. Marriage is ultimately pointing forward to Jesus and the church. Paul couldn't go to a wedding without saying, ah, there's a picture of Jesus, ah, there's a picture of the church. Until you get to the end of time, let us rejoice and be glad and give him glory. For the wedding of the Lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Can you imagine that day? Jesus, will you take this church to be your wedded wife? I will. 
church, will you take this Jesus to be your wedded husband? We will. And we will indeed live happily ever after. I hope you're looking forward to it. It's going to be quite good. The Christian's future is to have a leading role in the greatest royal wedding the universe has ever known. The Christian's future is to have a leading role in the greatest royal wedding the universe has ever known. Have you noticed as you look through the Bible's story, it starts with a wedding and ends with a wedding? Have you noticed that? It starts with Adam and Eve, it ends with Jesus and the church. And the first of those is deliberately designed to point to the second. It is to point to the whole trajectory of the universe. The ultimate eternal marriage between Jesus and his people. And what the Bible argues, particularly in Ephesians 5 but elsewhere, is that essentially our human marriages are intended to reflect that. Now, I know we don't always manage this, but it is why we aim for marriages that are loving and committed and faithful. Because the eternal marriage between Jesus and the church is loving and committed and faithful. But it is also why Christians need to believe that marriage must be heterosexual. Because the eternal union between Jesus and the church is a union between those who are different. Jesus and the church are not the same. And that's reflected in the biggest difference that there is within humanity, the difference between a man and a woman. Forgive me, partly because this is a personal issue for me. I I generally hate trite statements, but if you'll forgive me one, in eternity, Jesus doesn't marry Jesus. And in eternity, the church doesn't marry the church. I mean, can you imagine the church marrying the church without Jesus? You really would be left with an eternity of notices. That's all you would have left. It has to be this union in difference. It has to be this union between Jesus and the church. And that's why I am passionate about Christians holding on to this. Christians believe that marriage is about something different to what non-Christians think it's about. Non-Christians think it's primarily about living out our desires. We think it's a picture of something else. And that's what Christians need to be clear on. Uh, C.S. Lewis doesn't put it tritely. One of the functions of human marriage is to express the nature of the union between Christ and the church. We have no authority to take the living and seminal figures which God has painted on the canvas of our nature and shift them about as if they were mere geometrical figures. Let me explain what that means. He's saying essentially that, that marriage has been painted on the canvas of human nature down through history. What God has painted as a picture of eternity. And it's a masterpiece. And we don't, I certainly don't feel I've got the liberty to say, actually, I think that picture would work well. If I tweaked that and changed that and moved that around, it would work just as well. I don't think I've got the freedom to do that. Even though at times, if I'm honest, that's slightly painful for me. That's the picture that God has given. In other words, to put it like this, sexuality is a signpost. Human sexuality is intended and designed to deliberately point beyond itself to eternity. 
Now, the problem is what happens in our culture, and actually sometimes within the church, is that we forget it's a signpost. In other words, it's as though you go on a once-in-a-lifetime trip to, I don't know, say the Grand Canyon, kind of driving along, and you see the signpost, Grand Canyon, three miles that way. And you get out, and you put nice clothes on, and you have a nice meal, and you take lots of photos, and you have a celebration, and then you go home. And people ask you, what was the Grand Canyon like? You say, oh, the signpost was amazing. When our culture suggests that the main goal in life is to find your sexual partner or your romantic other, it forgets that sexuality is a signpost. And let's be honest, when the church can imply the main goal in life is to get married, we forget that it's a signpost. Don't get me wrong, marriage is a really, really good signpost. It's a precious gift from God, and it's a signpost. The goal of life is to get married as part of the church to Jesus forever. That's the goal in life. And I'm convinced this is profoundly healthy for us. This is profoundly healthy for us to to view it like this. I'm going to say it's healthy for those of us who are single. I suspect, sure, to the Lord's miraculous intervention, I'm pretty sure I won't end up getting married in this life. And there are pains in that. But can I I'm missing out on the signpost. I'm not missing out on the reality. And I've done the maths. I'm going to be single for about 0.0000001% of my existence. As part of the church, I'm going to be married to Jesus for 99.99999% of my existence. Because, you know, life is short and eternity is long. And as Christians, we need to hold on to that. Part of me just wants to turn the telescope the right way round. Because so often what we say is marriage here and now, and oh, there's this Christ in the church thing. But it's actually the Christ in the church thing. That's going to be the thing that lasts for a long time. And, well, marriage now is a good gift. And actually, it seems to me that it is healthy for those who are married to see it like this. I have friends, occasionally, apparently, marriage isn't always permanent bliss, I I gather. And sometimes what can put pressure on at those times is the assumption that this should be permanent bliss all the time. Can I say, if you think marriage is going to satisfy you permanently and perfectly, that's an awful lot of pressure to put on your spouse. Whereas it's helpful to say, this is good, but actually the one who's going to satisfy me perfectly and permanently, that's in the future. It just takes the pressure. I actually remember doing a a Living Out event where somebody actually came up to Ed and me who were doing it at lunchtime and saying, I think you've just really saved my marriage. I've just been on the phone to my wife. We're putting so much pressure on because it had to be perfect all the time. I think you've just said to me, it isn't supposed to be perfect all the time, but to point to what is. I think that can be really useful, actually, to see it ultimately as a signpost. Now, I'm going to pause for a couple of minutes just to give you some breath. Maybe you want just to talk, don't move around, just two or three uh, around you. How do you think it helps to see sexuality as a signpost? Just two or three things. Or If nothing has struck you so far, feel free to talk about how you're enjoying the week. But if anything has struck you, just two or three minutes...
as to what struck you, and then uh, we'll pick up some other stuff. Two or three minutes, go. Sorry, it's funny, I'm, I'm an off-the-scale introvert, so I hate it when people make me do that. So um, I just enjoyed watching it and just enjoyed doing it to you, really. But um, <laughs> let me try and put that within a, a sort of wider picture of, um, of humanity, given that's our theme for the week. Because what I want to say is what I've looked at does fit within the pattern of the Christian life. Firstly, we are those who are created. We're made in God's image. I'll say more on this tomorrow. But what we want to say is all people, irrespective of their sexual attractions, are worthy of dignity and respect because there is a fundamental equality being made in God's image. And so we want to argue against things like homophobia and so on. We'll say more on that tomorrow. But we're also those who are fallen. One of the questions I'll often get asked goes something like this, but Andy, surely God made you gay? And to be honest, I want to resist that language, actually. Because a biblical view of humanity will say we're all precious, valuable, worthy of dignity and respect because we're made in God's image. And all of us will experience desires and so on that aren't the way we were designed. And that will be true across the board. Every one of us will have something like that going on. For me, one of the ways that works out is a desire to have a sexual relationship with a man, something that God has forbidden. It'll be different for you, but it'll be something. And that is just a a right view, it seems to me, of humanity. It's not to be regarded as a a reason for disgrace or for prejudice. It's just the reality. And yet, gloriously, we are those who are redeemed. That's to say, Jesus has bought us. We're given a precious identity, we'll see in a minute, as children of God. How does that work its way out into our sexual attractions? Again, sometimes people will come to me and say, well, look, Andy, if you're really converted, if you're really a Christian, presumably those sort of you know, desires will go away and you'll find yourself happily married to a woman in a few years' time. I have to be honest, I think that goes further than the New Testament suggests. We're not slaves to sin anymore. In other words, there is a glorious freedom. So actually the desires that we have don't control us anymore. They're not the essence of who we are. But it seems to me the battle with temptation will go on until the new creation. And so the way I will put it is my same-sex attraction means, it means various things. One of the things it means is I experience ongoing temptation by something that doesn't control me anymore. Until the point when we're glorified. I often used to say, actually, that I won't be same-sex attracted in the new creation. Actually, I'm not entirely convinced we'll be opposite-sex attracted in the new creation. Because actually, it's all heading towards Jesus and the church. All of that will have been subsumed and fulfilled in the glory of the new creation. And so it seems to me what I've been teaching on this does just fit within a natural view of humanity as you work its way out through created, fallen, redeemed, and glorified. 
And it fits within the pattern of the Christian life that Jesus gives us. Here's Jesus in front of a crowd. And he says this, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now, I'm always struck by this passage because, frankly, this is so different to what I would say at an evangelistic event. Hey, here's a crowd of people who aren't Christians. Become a Christian. It's wonderful. You get forgiveness. You get God living in you. and You get a hope for the future. And you get a meaning in life. Become a Christian. It's amazing. And Jesus says, if anyone wants to be my disciple, they must deny themselves, take up their cross and follow me. Have you ever thought Jesus needs some PR help? But this is what it is to be a Christian. It it struck me, actually, in some ways, this is about as challenging a thing as you can say to our culture, actually. You're in a culture where the highest value is be true to yourself, be true to your deepest desires. Jesus says to be a Christian involves denying yourself and following him. That is about as challenging a thing to our culture as anything, I think. And we just need the clarity of that's what Jesus says it is to be a disciple. Remember somebody asking me, and I, again, I understood the force of the question, Look, Andy, how can I say to my gay friend if they become a Christian, they might never have a sexual relationship? How on earth can I say that to them? And again, I really understood the force of the question. And I simply said, look, it's probably not you saying it, it is Jesus saying it ultimately. Actually, to become a Christian is to deny yourself. And there is a cost in that. But you notice how it goes on. Whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. Funny enough, as a a living out team, all of us who experience same-sex attraction wanting to live in line with what we've looked at today. We were just talking about this, and, and all of us would say, is there a cost to not having a sexual relationship? Yeah, there is. Is it worth it? Absolutely. Because those who lose their life for me will ultimately save it. Because, hey, we get Jesus. And what can be better than that? And again, it's just having a clarity. This is normal Christianity. Again, we'll look at this more tomorrow. For me, this will work out in terms of same-sex attraction. For all of us, it will work out in some other way, but it will work out. Again, around the room, I've no doubt there are costs being born for being a Christian. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. And then, and this actually is broader than just same-sex attraction. As we face temptations, perhaps particularly in the sexual realm, what are the things that encourage us? Here's a verse that's meant a lot to me over the years from Hebrews chapter 2. Talk about Jesus, because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. I think this is just for those who are interested in how do we do pastoral care in the area of sexuality. This is really useful. Now, it's hard to know quite how Jesus' temptations work, but Hebrews 2 is pretty clear. The temptations are enough that he can be sympathetic. He can sympathize, help those who are being tempted. Yeah, for a while, I think, particularly as a teenager growing up, as I was just getting to grips with this seems to be what's going on, 
I remember, to be honest, it was a thing I just couldn't talk to Jesus about. It was kind of battle that I was facing. I can't talk to Jesus about that because, well, he'll just go, ugh. Hebrews 2 changed that, actually. Actually, Jesus became somebody I could talk to in the midst of challenge and temptation because he is fundamentally sympathetic. Can I just ask, by the way, the Jesus you have in mind, is he sympathetic? The real one is. And then 2 Corinthians 12, again, passage that's meant a lot to me. Paul has this painful thorn in the flesh. No idea what it was, but it describes as a messenger of Satan. And astonishing, this thing that he finds painful is actually the thing that Satan probably uses to torment him, but God uses it for good to actually force Paul to depend on him. And the promise God gives through Paul is this, my grace is sufficient for you, my power is made perfect in weakness. And again, for those of us who are facing whatever, this area or some other actually, just long-term stuff that we wouldn't have chosen but is the reality we face, it seems to me this is God's promise to us. I can testify to the reality of it over 30 years. My grace is enough for you. My power's made perfect in weakness. And then just lastly on this, do you remember we started with the identity question? Yeah, what would I say to Nigel Owens, just feeling the, the sort of force, as it were, of his story? You know, attempt on his own life because he was gay, comes to a place of acceptance, goes off and has a successful career. I think if I were in a conversation with him, I would end up saying, look, I am massively sympathetic. That must have been really painful to grow up as a teenager wrestling without not knowing what was going on. But Nigel, can I say, there is a better identity available? Actually, as you rather than look inside yourself, you listen to a voice speaking to you. There's actually a place which is more secure now and forever. Because you know the identity that is given to us in the Lord Jesus. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we might be called children of God, and that is what we are. And that's for now. Well, one day when we see him, we'll be made perfectly like him. And I want us to have confidence in the Christian story, actually. The Christian story that says, as we listen to the voice outside us, he bestows on us the most wonderful, everlasting privilege to be called children of God. That is what we are. And so the call for the Christian is not live out your inmost desires. Live out what God has made you in the joyful privilege of living as a Christian. The reason Christians tend to change their minds on sexuality isn't because they are convinced the Bible has said something different to what it said for the last 2,000 years. People change their minds on sexuality because of stories. It might be things like the Nigel Owens story. If you spend long enough on the BBC News website, there'll be a sexuality story roughly once a week. Or more painfully, maybe it's a personal story. Often it is a son or daughter coming out as gay and Actually, that's throwing biblical ethics into confusion. And sometimes the Christian response can be, we've got these really powerful stories, but hey, our pastor's given a three-point talk beginning with the letter P, and there's a slight mismatch going on. Let me tell you the Christian story. 
Let me tell you the story of Jenny. Jenny's basically a composite of various people that I know. So Jenny, who didn't grow up in a Christian family, and as a teenager, she realized she was gay, she was attracted to other women. At later teenage years, have one or two sexual relationships. In her case, Jenny went off to university, and she was befriended by Christians who weren't put off by her sexuality, who got to know her, befriended her, invited her along to church. And she was intrigued, and she came. And over a period of time, Jenny heard the gospel, the Holy Spirit worked in her life, and she became a Christian. And Jenny did have the clarity, okay, this is what Jesus says, this is going to mean a change for me. Now that wasn't easy, and in her early years as a Christian, a couple of times she slipped back and got back into a relationship, had to repent and come back to the Lord. But over the years, she became increasingly faithful in living for him. And there was cost in that. There was pain as she saw friends get married, pain as she saw friends having kids. But she threw herself into the life of the church. She ended up leading the church youth group, having, as it were, spiritual children. She found the Lord Jesus to be a sympathetic high priest. She realized that the sufferings she was facing were just momentary compared with eternal glory. Until the time comes when Jenny dies and she sees the Lord, well done, good and faithful servant, come and enjoy your wedding day. And 10,000 years into eternity, she says, I am so glad I was faithful to Jesus. That's the Christian story, isn't it? Not embellished it, not exaggerated, that's just the Christian story according to the Bible. And I'm desperately, desperately keen that Christians realize it's the best story in the world. Now, just a minute or two again. Feel free to talk to somebody new. And then I think we've got about five or six minutes for questions. What we're going to do tomorrow is tomorrow we're going to get a bit more practical. So if you've got questions about things like church structure, how church values, singleness, pastoral care, how we answer questions about pride, feel free to come back for that tomorrow. But... Actually, let's just go straight to questions rather than making you talk to each other. Um, (laughs) That was purely just for my fun, really. Um, Anybody got questions, perhaps at the moment? Yeah, let's... uh, I think we've got one there. Yeah, thank you. So I think the question is, you know, I, I basically suggested it's likely that I will struggle with this until the new creation. Is that actually the case? Does the New Testament promise slightly more than that? I think that's the... The question based on 1 Corinthians 6. So I think 1 Corinthians 6, the, the sin seems to be what some of you were, seems to be engaging in homosexual sin, if that makes sense. And so do I think there is a right expectation for Christians not to be in slavery to, to lust and so on? Yeah, I think that is something that by the Spirit we should be making progressive goals to, to put to death. I think that is different to a guarantee that same-sex attraction will then turn into opposite-sex attraction. Partly, actually, because being opposite-sex attracted isn't a biblical command. You know, we're not commanded to have opposite-sex attraction. Um, and so I think I, I'm wary of making promises that say, look, if you just pray hard enough, your same-sex attraction will turn into opposite-sex attraction. Of course God can do anything, 
he may do that. And so I certainly, particularly actually with those who are really young, I wouldn't want to say this is definitely a lifelong thing. What I would say is I think the biblical expectation is we're not ruled by sin anymore. So we can expect temptation perhaps to lessen in its course as we're obedient. What I don't think there is a promise of is that we'll necessarily completely see sons and turn around. And I don't actually think 1 Corinthians 6 is saying those who did have homosexual relationships are all now definitely having heterosexual relationships. Okay, thanks. Hi, um, thank you so much. That was excellent. Um, something that I've noticed, which slightly follows on from your question, um, is that a lot of the books that I've read um, to do with same-sex attraction really avoid the language of sin, uh, and there's much more uh, talk of, sort of brokenness or fallenness. Yeah. Um, and interestingly, I, I think that was the first time you used the word sin in answering this question. So if, if, it's, if it's not too much to ask, no, what, what would you define as sin and what would you define as temptation? Yeah, that's a really helpful question. So, uh, so essentially what I would argue is um, the, the initial thing I face is, to put it, I think is temptation that emerges from the fact that I have a sinful nature. So I don't think that temptation is just sort of completely neutral. I think it does emerge from the fact that we are fallen. As that temptation is then developed in my mind into lustful thinking, that's sin. That, that clearly is sin. And so I do, I think, want to preserve, because I think it is a biblical distinction, a distinction between a temptation that emerges from a sinful nature within me but as that is indulged in any way, that has definitely turned into sin that needs to be repented of. And I think the other reason I want to... I don't quite know, if I'm honest, at a practical level, how I repent of my same-sex attraction. I don't quite know how to do that. I do know how to repent of that as it's turned into a sort of sinful thought life and, and so on. So if your question, I think it's helpful because it's actually useful for us to be pushed on this. I'm not saying sin only occurs when you have sex with another man. Of course, the whole New Testament will say it happens much earlier than that. And so it is a, my same-sex attraction does emerge from a sinful nature, and I need to be putting that to death rather than indulging it. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, you mentioned... Uh, that in the beginning, God made them male and female. And presumably, there's a clear uh, definition between what a man is and what a woman is, clearly defined. But after the fall, presumably, everything fell, including human sexuality. That's one point. But I often hear people saying that people made me this way and therefore, I should be entitled to live in a gay sexual relationship. So yeah. it's marrying these two things together. Yeah, and yeah. how does one respond to people who say, God made me this way? Yeah. Thank you. Yeah, thank you. I mean, on two things. Firstly, on the, the male-female um, elements. Um, I mean, I suspect that will be picked up more on Thursday and Friday, but it, it seems to me primarily we are defined bodily. That's that creation. Actually, the physical bodies that we have seem to be the main way in which we're seen as male-female. And, and I know there are nuances and questions about intersection and so on, which I'll let those who are coming on Thursday and Friday talk about. How do you respond to the fact that God made me this way? I, 
I think I'm one to... It's, it's really hard, this, because any language you use is likely to be perceived to be offensive. I don't, I'm trying in my head, actually, to try and work out how do you use language... So, so certainly if I'm talking to a Christian, I'm wanting to make the point, look, as you read the Bible's story, you know that not all the desires we have are things that God were part of God's original plan. And so part of me is wanting actually to broaden that out and say that's not just true of same-sex attraction or being gay, that's true of all of us. You know, none of us are called to simply live out the desires that we have, otherwise we're all in a mess. And so certainly for a Christian, that's the, the story that I would use. Actually, probably for a non... Well, po- probably as I'm talking to a non-Christian, I'm probably going to use... kind of depends what you think the universe is about. But I'm also saying, look, I suspect you'd probably agree that not all of us, in fact, none of us, should simply act on all the desires we have. Because I think, it's, I think most human beings would recognize not all, that not all the desires we have going on within our hearts are going to be healthy and good for society and humanity. And so that would be what I would be pointing to, is, look, the Bible story, and actually what we see, unsurprisingly, in human nature is not all desires are fundamentally right and healthy. Have we got time for one yeah, question? We'll one, just one do question, one more. One Last more. question. We will have more time for questions tomorrow. So, um... uh, so I'm a, a priest in the Anglican Church. I look after four rural churches in the benefice of 19 churches with four stipendary priests. And in amongst all of that, I'm the only minister that would fully agree with the biblical position on marriage being between one man and one woman. And the main flagship church in the area is a member of Inclusive Church, which has a lot of same-sex attracted couples within it, some of whom, one for an example, have been waiting for, I think, 45 years, uh, foregoing a civil partnership so that they're waiting for the Church of England to allow them to be married within church. They're delightful, wonderful people. What would I say to them about a faithful relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ? Yeah, thank you. And again, any conversation you're going to have is going to be full of compassion and simply that's a heartbreaking story in, in many ways. Um, two, two things Parliament does want to press towards look I know this is hugely difficult I do think there's a better story for you two uh, I do think there's a better marriage available for you two and, and I want and Parliament would want to say look can we think about this from what Jesus says so that, that's one conversation I think the second, this happened early on in Living Out's history, is um, we got a, an email from, it was before my time actually, the, the team got an email from uh, a couple with a, an adopted child, two women, um, who slightly to their astonishment, the child had become a Christian. And not long after that, slightly to their shock, they both became Christians. And then emailed Living Out to say, well, what do we do now? Um, and it, essentially the team sort of worked out what, what is there here that is sinful that needs to be repented of 
is there anything here that is good and that is pleasing to God, particularly when you've got an adopted kid in the mix? And so in a sense, what, what the team emailed back to say was, look, the sexual relationship seems to me does need to end because that is displeasing to God. You, you do actually need to stop calling this marriage because it isn't. And it might be that probably one of you needs to move out and move around the corner. But if actually what emerges is a really good, committed friendship where you are caring for this child, that seems to be something that is pleasing to God. And so in a sense, you're then trying to work out what is sin that needs to be repented of? Is there anything good in here that is salvageable? You may well disagree with the line we've just taken, but in a sense, I think those are the kind of pastoral questions you're wrestling with uh, in a situation like that. Now, none of that, I suspect, is what they will jump at, but I just think that's the faithful to Jesus position to take.